They reckon it takes 150,000 years for energy to make its way from the sun's core to its surface. Then, just 8 minutes and 20 seconds later, that energy has crossed 93 million miles of empty space to reach the Earth. And when it does, every leaf, every blade of grass, every photosizing living thing on Earth is there, ready to take that light, combine it with what looks like thin air, and make sugars. If I didn't know any better, and I almost don't want to actually, I'd call it magic. Robbie Blackhall Miles is a botanist whose work spans ecology, paleobiology, ethnobotany, horticulture, and so much more. He has a master's degree in conservation science from the Durrell Institute for Conservation and Ecology at the University of Kent. He has other roles. He is a chair of the Australasian Plant Society. He's a member of the International Dendrological Society. That's the study of trees and woody plants. And he's also a fellow of the prestigious Linnaean Society of London. So Robbie is a little bit of an outlier so far on this podcast because his is a story of system change, but from the inside out. So Robbie and I, in this episode, talk botany, we talk science, we talk conservation, all the usual stuff, but we also talk spirituality, animism, and our reverence for nature. I'm not going to lie, it can feel really exposing to talk like this as a scientist and still hope to be taken seriously. But I hope I hope you find it worth it because in our conversation, we sort of explore how this mindset and, and particularly his mindset of seeing divinity in nature and his playfulness as well with all of that has turned what is almost half the size of the average UK garden. So his backyard garden in Clanberris in North Wales, which is just over 100 square meters, he has now turned that into what is now a botanical garden, a botanical refugium of global importance. So yeah, we cover a lot of ground from conservation to indigenous ecological knowledge, to Welsh identity, to science, and even a bit of magic. Robbie, yeah, I can actually say hello now. Hi. <laughs> Haven't seen you since spring. <laughs> now, when I emailed you about this podcast, I was like, I want to get into all kinds of stuff. I want to talk about how your life experiences have shaped your worldview. I want to find out about like why you gave us that interview, which is literally one of my favorite interviews that we've done for Spring Watch. The irony of it all being that I wasn't actually there. So <laughs> that's yeah. something, doesn't it? But yeah, I just thought, you know, I want to talk plants, life. I always think of like the natural world, the human world. It is all about life and loss and struggle and despair and hope and joy mm. and all those things. So we've got an hour. <laughs> Let's see how <laughs> Not we do enough. I just thought, just as a starter, just give us a little introduction about the kind of milestones of who you are and your sort of education journey and the kind of professional stuff, if you like. Okay, so who am I? So I'm Robbie Blackhall-Miles. I'm, I have lots of different titles in my life. So, so there's a big 
on a moment by moment basis, I can be lots of different things, mostly to do with the environment and ecology. Someone recently gave me the moniker uh, um, ethnoecologist. So I'm an ecologist that really sees people as part of the system rather than separate from it. And, and that's actually one of the things that really interests me most is that interaction between people and nature. And that's actually been something that's been there all the way through my life. But that's not to say that I haven't, that I've always been involved professionally in nature because I haven't. I left school to work as a zookeeper, having gotten ungraded for my geography at GCSE. I'm quite dyslexic. So when I get into high stress situations, actually the whole world falls apart and geography was one of my favourite GCSEs. So I got really stressed about it and that was the end of that. And so I thought, right, okay, I'm going to just leave school and get earning some money. Well, honestly, being a zookeeper does not earn money. And it certainly didn't at the time at one pound, I think <laughs> one pound 15 an hour or something ridiculous like that. Um, so I decided that I was going to actually go out there and earn some proper money um, and made the choice. Luckily, I was good looking enough to work in the fashion industry and tried my hand at modeling and worked in fashion styling for hair and makeup and eventually all about chasing the money. And it very quickly came to pass that I was not happy. There's a big difference between between money and happiness. And so all the time that I was doing this, I was volunteering here and there, doing stuff to do with nature and conservation and always had my interests in in nature, getting qualifications. So part-time over, I think, five years, I did a degree in environmental management and I was always into extreme sports as well. So I used to skateboard. And then one day I had a skateboarding accident. That's quite a mix already. I know. And so I had this extreme, this skateboarding accident and my life really fell apart. I hadn't been paying national insurance because I was working self-employed and I didn't, so I didn't have sickness benefit coming in. And, and then at the garden centre one day with my mum, I had to move back in with my parents and what have you. I ran into uh, a lady called Lucia who said, I don't know how we even got chatting. It was one of those completely random situations. And she said, oh, you seem like just the right person to come and work with us at the RSPB. And suddenly from really not the darkest situation, there was light. And, and this whole world of being involved in fashion and marketing and what have you collided with conservation. And I got myself a, a job as a people engagement bod for the RSPB. And, and I was back in conservation, actually the place that I probably should have been all the way along. And it's gone on from there. So now, so now I work for the charity Plant Life. I also teach uh, ecology at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. I have been a horticultural consultant at the Natural History Museum in London and a whole bunch of other stuff. And everything feels comfortable because it is where I should be and and it feels like this is what I should be doing. So that's my professional journey and it's a completely 
totally random way of getting to where I am today. I wanted to have you on this podcast. It's a podcast series about, ostensibly, about system change, unpacking, Mm. you know, all the aspects of that, whatever that might mean, in all its different guises. And a lot of the people that I was thinking, well, who would I like to speak to on a podcast about system change? And I went quite quickly to sort of environmental lawyers and people involved in sort of political economy, you know, social justice activists. And then there was this thing pinging in the back of my mind, which was led me back to Springwatch and how our paths crossed. And it was in North Wales. I wasn't able to be there to actually interview you for the Mm. pre-record. So you actually just went ahead with the director, Lawrence Whitaker. And he actually captured, I think, like one of my favorite interviews. And that's because I felt like quite often we forget about how ridiculously amazing nature is. And Mm. you actually went into photosynthesis. And I always think like if we had a different way of describing photosynthesis, we would be like, we should always be blown away by it. And you really went Mm. into the magic of that. So that already got me. I was like, wow, this is a guy who's obviously done a lot of the research and all the kind of, you know, ists, you know, the ecologist and the botanist and all that. But he hasn't lost sight of like how magical this is. It is magic. I I just can't think of anything more magical, actually. Yeah, we know the physical processes behind it. We've, you know, photosynthesis is something that, that we've studied as scientists for an awfully long time. But plants are literally the only things on this planet that can take light from the sun and turn it into something that's usable here. And energy is one of these amazing, you know, we, energy can't be made or destroyed it can only be changed so we know that we've got like heat energy kinetic energy sound energy all of these different types of energies that are constantly moving around this planet but the only real apart from what happened with the big bang and the creation of all of the elements that's if the big bang took place you know we that that's a theory at the end of the day but apart from that thing the only thing that's entering our our little bubble here on earth is the light from the sun and some kind of minerals some elements that are crossing into our atmosphere and so the fact that plants do that job of turning that thing that's entering our atmosphere in the form of light that energy and could start to convert it and turn it into other things that are actually usable that have enabled all of the diversity of life on earth to exist is absolutely magical it really is and i just can't get past that i can't get past that if people could only realize just how important plants actually are through that process of photosynthesis our relationship with nature would change Well, this, uh, you've literally landed us where it's a podcast about system change. And yes, we can be talking about all these external things, systems and structures and infrastructure. And what can we change to make this place, the world a better place, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, if we don't start from mindset and actually more than mindset, you sort of heart and soul stuff now, right? If we look at that, what 
is possible. And that's definitely a part of me, like even just listening to you and just being reminded of some really basic things that I think we do take for granted. I mean, certainly, I know this is going to sound really hippie, but, you know, just the fact that the sun actually rises every morning, like, you know, I can understand why there was a time when people fell to their knees in gratitude each morning because they weren't sure it was going to happen. And yeah, there's that sort of difference between connecting with nature and revering it. And, you know, this isn't going to get all sort of theological and do we need to worship the sun again? I'm not talking about that, but, you know, I think this is where you and I sort of felt there was a lot of crossover. So I've heard you talk about your early years, Mm -hmm. Robbie the boy, um, and there was a particular memory that you were talking about, and I'd I'd love to pull this up because there was questions if I'd been there in the room, I'd have asked you. Mm -hmm. You talked about being very much like the Christopher Robin character, or you looked like him anyway. And is it your brothers had books about dinosaurs? Is that right? Yes. Plants have always been a thing. Nature's always been a thing. I was really lucky to have been born into a family, certainly on my maternal side, where they were agronomists and cut flower growers and my grandma, I wouldn't like to give her the moniker witch, but she was. The, in a good way? Yeah, in a really good way. I mean, witches, witches aren't, we, you know, we mm-hmm. think about witches as ladies in black capes and black and pointed black hats, right? But witches were actually people with the knowledge. They were wise people, historically. And I would say that the family that I came from were a family of wise people. They knew about country law. They knew about nature in a way that was self-taught, self-learned, passed on. This is not science. This is about understanding, deep understanding. And so I was very lucky in that respect that I was born into this particular family. But then my brothers... My dad's side of the family isn't like that at all, actually. My dad was all about, he worked in Formula One and Formula 2000 and rally cars and, you know, a bit of a petrol head. And and how these two families collided was quite an interesting thing in its own right. So my brothers were definitely interested in cars and macho and, and I just wasn't. And so they they were obsessing at whatever age it was with T-Rex. And I was looking in these books and seeing the plants that were depicted in the pictures in these books behind the T-Rex or the battle between the T-Rex and the Triceratops or Stegosaurus and what have you. And these plants, I was like, they're fascinating. Plants have been around for as long as these dinosaurs And actually, then when you see that they're in those drawings, you see a plant, I recognise that. And it's a monkey puzzle tree. And monkey puzzle trees are super interesting because effectively they evolved so that they wouldn't be eaten by dinosaurs. And they still look like that today. And we had a monkey puzzle tree in our garden. And so suddenly my head exploded with this idea that there was actually things living on this planet today that had been around for that period of time and remained almost the same. And we'd lost all of those non-avian dinosaurs. I mean, the fact that the robin in my garden is a direct evolutionary relative of the avian dinosaurs is a different story, but we'd lost all those non-avian dinosaurs and yet we still have the plants on this planet. And 
that was pretty incredible for a little boy's head. I imagine so. So you were the kind of even as a child, the kind of person I was going to push past all the lead characters in a scene and actually fall in love with like the set dressing. Because I guess that's what those plants and those illustrations would have been relegated to a detail kind of in the background, a backdrop rather than the lead character. That's weirdly, I guess, with your journey that's gone through modeling and extreme sports has led you to the fossil garden. So describe, hey, describe the garden, first of all, like what it looked like when you, when you bought your house in North Wales and what it is today. Oh, right. Okay. So my partner and I met on Christmas Day 13 years ago. And within three months, we'd bought this house together. It was love, and, love at first sight. In fact, the first, our f- first two weeks we knew each other, we went winter climbing with each other. So essentially ice climbing. And and if you can't learn to trust a person... Is that in North Wales? In North Wales, yeah. It was one of the best winters we've ever had in North Wales. But if you can't learn to trust somebody doing something like that, then you, you know, that, that was a really good, sound basis of trust for us. And so within a very short period of time, I mean, almost in a matter of days, we knew that we would not only be able to trust each other to go up one of these winter routes, but also trust each other with the rest of our lives. And so within three months, we'd bought a house. Uh, My partner carried on working in London for a further six months, but I moved into the house. And the day that we got the keys, this house had a, a garden, which was just a lawn. There was nothing else in it. And we got the keys and I said to my partner, actually, we kind of need to show the world that we're going to be living here. A, a rumour had gone around the village a little bit that uh, a city banker and his model boyfriend had bought the house that was a holiday let on this road. And, you know, in a small village in rural Wales, that story isn't so great. And so we really wanted to let yeah. let everybody know that we're actually going to be moving here. So what better way to let people know that you're going to be living there is by putting a hanging basket up at the front of the house, right? So we went to the garden centre to go and buy a hanging basket with pansies in it, pansies very specifically, because then the people of the village would see that this hanging basket was being looked after. I don't know what the psychology really was around this, but but what we actually came back from the garden centre with was a wallamai pine. So a wallamai pine is a, a another lazarius relic of the Jurassic era. It's related to monkey puzzle trees, very rare in the wild, only about 100 individuals left in the wild in the world. And in order to conserve this species, what they did was they propagated it and made it available for sale. It was only discovered in 1994, and this was one of the first wave of Wallamai pines that was available for sale in the UK. And my partner saw this tree, thought it was beautiful, and decided that we were going to buy it. And I said to him, do you know what that is? And it's very expensive. And his opinion of that was, well, this is a tree. This is an investment. Trees surely are an investment. And that was enough for me to go, well, if you want to buy it, then buy it. 
But this is also a really very rare tree and we need to look after it. And so this was the start of a journey for he and I to create this garden. You know, this we'd started with a plant that has a fossil record that's Jurassic in origin, 250 million years old. And suddenly this little boy's head that had exploded all those years ago was allowed to do what it does. And and we created this garden and brought together this collection of plants that have a fossil record that predates the extinction of the dinosaurs. Where our garden is 115 square meters, we have over a thousand plant species in it. We have a, prop- a conservation research nursery now alongside the garden, and the garden is now an accredited botanic garden, Botanic Gardens Conservation International, which we're members of. So 115 square meters back garden in a village in rural Wales is an accredited botanic garden, making it probably the smallest botanic garden in the world. So you're growing over a thousand species of plants in what is, I guess, a typical sized garden. Why would you not just start a seed bank? Why the whole process to actually keeping the the entire plant? This does fall into theology now. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm animist. So, So I'm a scientist and science is absolutely wonderful as a way of helping us to work through a process of understanding the world. Science is a really good mechanism to allow us to do that. The idea of formulating a hypothesis, finding a question, answer it or trying to answer the question and providing the evidence in order to answer the question is a very constructive process. But there are questions that we as humans can't answer and may never be able to answer. There's questions that I personally am not able to answer. And some of those questions science might have answered, but I've not seen the research yet. Some of those questions are quite personal questions about understanding the natural world and my personal experience of understanding the natural world. Um, And over the years, through this career that I've had, through my experience, I've asked a lot of those questions because I am a question, I'm a question asker. I I'm always asking questions of the natural world. Why is that like that? What is that doing? The study of natural history is about observation and about seeing what's going on in the natural world and and making observation and using that observation to gain understanding. And for me, this is what I've done all my life. But that asking of questions has led to some things not being answerable for me. We have a very human mechanism of how we deal with stuff that we can't answer. And one of those mechanisms is theology, is the study of religion. And some people use God as an answer for those. I believe that all of those things, every individual in nature is a small God. It helps me to answer my questions, that belief that ecosystems can have being, spirit, whatever you want to call it, attached to them. And so growing these things 
actually having direct interaction with these things enables me to better understand them as individuals. And so we have a seed bank here. It's, you know, uh, we actually have a seed bank in the house in specialist storage facilities. And that's all very well and good. That's about, that's pure conservation, particularly of our South African species. But, but the plants in the garden, really, for me, it's all about understanding them as individuals, as individual beings. And so I know that's quite, for a scientist to say something like that is quite unusual. But, you know, it's about the magic that we've been talking about, that, that uh, spirit or magic or something. I don't really have the words for it that makes nature and the natural world and the way that this world functions so wonderful. If everyone or more people could find their own pathway to that depth of emotion mm -hmm. that you have about this and that belief of honouring every individual being, what difference do you think that could make? This podcast is called If I Ruled the World. Well, if I ruled the world, I would reconnect humanity with nature. I'm not expecting everybody on the planet to believe the same way as I believe. But what I would like to see is for people to realise that they aren't central to it, but they are significant drivers, significant impactors of the natural world. And actually just now, in, in where we are, are at on the timeline of life on Earth, the most significant drivers of the natural world, and that our actions actually have consequences that mean that we are actually part of the system. We're not separate from it. And so if people could remake that connection with nature and the natural world, re-realise that position that we have in it and the importance of it to us as our life giver, things would start to change. I think I want to believe that, you know, I do. Um, how we get there, <laughs> yeah. if you could get us there, please do. When I learned about the magnetosphere, like the layers of atmosphere, and I didn't realise there was this yield. I mean, again, it's like magic stuff of science fiction, if you like, that there's like a literally like a, a magnetic shield around our planet that protects us from these screaming, raging solar storms that send like radiation screaming through the space. And by the grace of this magnetic shield, the magnetosphere, we're here. That in of itself is probably, again, just a kind of... A moment to say thank you. Yes. <laughs> that it's even possible because of that. We've all woken up to the idea of how we spend our money can be our loudest vote. But what about where we keep our money, who we bank with? According to the Consumer Association, UK high street banks are amongst the worst culprits when it comes to financing fossil fuels, arms companies, and frankly, all the stuff we don't think about when we think about positive change. So Triodos Bank has been blazing a trail for the financial sector in ethical and sustainable banking for over 40 years. They're top rated by Ethical Consumer Magazine. They've been named Best Ethical Financial Provider at the British Bank Awards. They're doing really good stuff. Their aim is simple, to be a safe and secure bank for your money while being totally transparent 
with what they do with your money. So no lending or investing in fossil fuel projects and focusing instead on renewable energy, nature regeneration and community-based projects. I honestly couldn't be happier or prouder to have them as a sponsor for If I Rule the World. I mean, you've touched on so much like huge stuff. And again, I, I just knew that there would be a lot of talking points, a lot of ideas that we we share and that that sense of as a scientist, you kind of have like the brakes on slightly with revealing the true extent of like, well, there's this other side to me that actually you know, has this wonderment and reverence almost. And it, it sort of feels, I mean, I know we're on a podcast, so it's out now, guys. But um, <laughs> I wanted to mention, because when we met that fateful day now in Springwatch, I'd mentioned a book, Braiding Sweetgrass. It was written by botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer, American, who is scientifically trained as a botanist, but also a member or citizen of the Potawatomi Nation. So she sort of sits between indigenous worldviews, indigenous ecological knowledge and the science, if you like. And so this book was just this like beautiful kind of braiding Mm. clues in the title of these different worldviews. It made me think a little bit about how we tend not to think about Britain having indigenous culture. Oh, but we do. We do, mm. don't we? And we do. Particularly where you are in Wales, in North Wales. Yeah. Talk to me about that. How can people have lost all the threads with their indigenous ancestors? How do we find that again? So I'm Another thing that I'm very fortunate to be is Gogleth Cymru. I'm North Walian. Um, and Wales is one of the Atlantic fringe Celtic nations alongside Cornwall, Scotland, Ireland, Brittany, Galicia. And the Celts were here a long time ago, but the influence of them has remained. And it's remained mostly through language. And for me, language here in Wales... I'm dyslexic. I was brought up first language, Saisneg, English and Welsh for me. Bilingualism is actually a problem for me. So I understand the Welsh language very well, but I don't speak it. I actually get very nervous about speaking it. I stammer very badly when I'm speaking it. So I prefer to just conduct my life through the medium of English. But that language and the language's connection to the land and vice versa is very important around here. Place names in Wales are normally very descriptive. There's elements of the language that really can't be translated, one of which I think my favourite word in the Welsh language is adveriad. It's about restoration and restitution and returning, giving something back to the thing from which it came, from which it belongs. And the fact that there is this layer here, the, this layer in my life of Welshness that enables me to see the world through my Welshness and to understand land through my Welshness and the history of the way that land was managed, the history of the way that land could be, could look, could feel, is actually quite important to me. And I think that in the same way as Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote, I mean, I cried all the way through that book. And the reason why I cried all the way through that book, and thank you so much for recommending it to me, is because 
those thoughts and feelings that Robin was talking about in that book were the same thoughts and feelings as I've been having, but not had a place to put them. For a long time, I've known about this stuff, but then suddenly I read a book and there's someone else out there that was feeling the same things and it made me feel not so weird. I got curious about what I now call British indigenous culture. I think, I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate, but, I, you know, what most people call paganism, actually. Yeah. And that's from moving down to Cornwall, and you point out Cornwall is part of the sort of Celtic nations. Until I lived in Cornwall, I didn't realise it had its very distinctive identity. And in Cornwall, you never refer to Cornwall as England. And I find it like I have a bit of a glitch when I hear someone sort of from other parts of the country refer to, well, you know, England. I'm like, no, no, it's Cornwall. And then I'm like, oh, you know what? <laughs> this may not be the hill I'm going to die on. But for me, as someone who was born in Kenya, very soon after independence, my parents had a living memory of segregation, of the independence mm. struggle. And then subsequently growing up and seeing the same story on repeat, whether it was North America, Australia, you name it. And I think it was once I started living here and going, oh, hang on a second. It's almost like that same disruptive force yeah. that in this country, I guess, is what, 2000 years ago? I'm no historian, mm -hmm. so I may give or take a few hundred years yeah. at least. That there was this kind of disconnection from the indigenous knowledge. And I often think of indigenous people as being the OG ecologists, like the original ecologists. They're absolutely supreme observers mm. of the living natural world mm. of the cosmos. So in some ways, I almost feel like when I go back and, and see my family in Kenya or anywhere really, and I hear people sort of refer to the British, usually as the English, as one big amorphous mass, mm. I feel like, wow, what value would that be to say, well, that, that same colonization, that same disruption that disconnected people from their language, from their knowledge of the land, their knowledge of like seasons and rhythms, that's happened here too, just a really long time ago. And I guess in a world where there's a lot of them and us and polarization, mm. I'm really drawn to that story that this kind of seems to have repeated itself through history and certainly from for people that look like me that's very recent history um yes. but it happened here too i have family from cambridgeshire and from the fens of cambridgeshire mm. and the fenlands the fenish people they fought long and hard against enclosure against their land being taken and their culture being taken away from them in Wales, we have had the same battle. Scotland, there has been battles akin to that. But we're talking about a long time ago, but it's still felt. Particularly here in Wales, it's still felt. I'm, I sit on the fence entirely about, about independence of Wales, mainly because I also understand the story of the movement of people in and out of Wales. And my family is a family that moved to Cheshire and Liverpool and what have you, and then back to Wales and then back out again and then back in again in order to get work and, hmm. and what have you. So there's been this kind of cross-pollination of English-Welsh, English-Welsh all the way through the history of my family. So I sit very much on the fence about independence. But that doesn't mean to say that the hurt isn't felt. And, and it's quite poignant to think about 
those kind of ideas, particularly right now when there's so much going on in the world that's actually about very similar stories. And so your story about post-colonialism Kenya and where you come from as a person, it really, I have, I understand, you know, I understand that. I understand, I have an element, I'm not saying I understand it fully, but I have an, an element of understanding of that recent history because of the fact that I understand how I feel because of my own lived experience. I find it extraordinary that we have kind of reached here because we couldn't, in many ways, couldn't be more different, but mm. then at the same time, how similar we are, how much we share to mm. have connected. So from me to to you, to Robin Wall Kimmerer, for me, I guess there's something that Kimmerer talks about, which is the difference between learning about nature and learning from nature. Mm. So with that in mind, I'm just wondering, what do you think... I mean, one way of asking the questions, what can we learn from plants and particularly fossil plants? Mm. That's your area of specialty. But it might be a different way of framing it would be, you know, what are they trying to teach us? I mean, was, is that a step too far? Firstly, there's about 400,000 plant species on this planet and all of them have the potential to deliver something for something else because that's the nature of nature. Everything is interconnected. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And some things are like the blue sky and the green grass, and you don't really know what they're for, but without them, you would lose the entire picture. And I think that for me, the natural world is so amazingly diverse. The, the spectrum of diversity means that there is always going to be more to learn. There's always more that the natural world can tell us can provide for us, can help us with. It's almost never-ending. There's so many species that we haven't even described yet, that we haven't even named, and that's in our scientific naming of those things, let alone the non-scientific, the indigenous naming of things. There's species out there that local people know about that science doesn't yet know about, and vice versa. And what is there out there that there is to offer for us and the rest of nature from this amazing, magical thing that we're all surrounded by and yet we're so disconnected from. You mentioned like even earlier than this that there are things that we may never know. Mm. And I get the sense right now that science is kind of in service to politics and business and it, it needs to be sure of itself and there is no real room for mystery that the messaging needs to be clear it needs to be unambiguous it needs to help us set the direction of travel how does that play out in your mind in terms of system change like how do we rescue science from itself is that fair to say maybe or reach the places where science can't reach maybe that's a better way of putting it i'm always going on about nuance so in my work, I'm always saying conservation has become very prescriptive. A scientist goes away, does a piece of research, and in the the kind of the the summary stuff of the paper that gets written, there'll be some headline stuff. And of course, those headline things are the things that always get the in the abstract. Those headline things always are the bits that get taken out of it and used. But you actually do need to read the whole paper in order to understand how they got to those headlines. 
and to the abstract. Mm. Most scientists, unless they're really under the pay of big corporate or something like that, generally have one stent. It's the reason why they're there asking the questions. So it's really not a case of saving science from itself, but it's more about enabling the nuance, enabling that idea that that headline isn't the whole story, that we do need to look at the edges of the story, the fact that there's there's subtleties there and that there's nuance there and that it and that there's actually more to learn and that actually one of the best things about science is that it leads us to more questions and and really good science should always lead us to more questions because and that's the way that I work I've always got questions I never stop asking questions I'm always looking and what about that and why is that like that and how should that be and how and particularly working in conservation, how can I utilise the answers to those questions to better enable me to do my job and protect this amazing, magical world that is the natural world? And so I think that that's where I'm at with that, is that we almost need to take a step back. We need to stop with the headlines. We need to start to think that actually there will always be more questions to ask and to answer and that we need to consider the nuance. You answered a question earlier that I would have asked at this stage about the podcast title, Robbie, what would you do Mm -hmm. if you rule the world? Um, Another question that I sort of felt necessary to ask, you know, of other guests, particularly people that aren't directly involved in nature, conservation, biology, any natural history, would have been, you know, well, you know, sort of favourite animal, plant, habitat. Would you be able to answer sort of like of all those three, like what's the favourite? Do you could, could you choose? Is there an ecosystem, a habitat, landscape, a plant, um, animal? What's your favourite? Species-wise, it swings on day-to-day, hour by moment by moment, um, what my favourite species is. Currently, I think it's a thing called an Arctic pea clam. It's a tiny little bivalve clam, about two millimetres across, and we have it in just five upland lakes in Wales, only recently rediscovered in two of them, last seen in the 1970s. And I have absolutely fallen in love with this thing. I was tasked a couple of years ago through my work to change the fortunes for this species. But this species is so difficult to survey for that the past two years I've just been building up to being able to even recognise it. And it is definitely... So what does it look like? Oh, it's like a tiny little clam, two to three millimetres across. It's white or browny in colour. And it lives in the upland lakes here in Aruri, but it also occurs in the Lake District in Scotland and in Norway, Sweden and in the High Arctic. And it's a relic here at the southern edge of its range from the ice ages. And, you know, I I deal with mountain plants and mountain ecosystems, so why would I not end up looking after a tiny little relic pea clam? But the thing is that this clam is one of those pieces of blue sky or green grass in the jigsaw puzzle. It's important in its own right. It's probably cleaning the water in the upland lakes which it lives in, but it's so tiny that I can't understand how it is 
like the most important thing delivering that service in those ecosystems. So it definitely falls into the blue sky, green grass category. But, do you know, so cute, the fact that there is a tiny little clam out there that is so small and so difficult to understand, and we don't know hardly anything about it, and yet it's here in lakes around where I live doing its thing. And then ecosystem-wise, oh my goodness me, that's an easy one to answer. The Cape Floristic region, the Feinbos in the Western Cape of South Africa, there's a mountain there called Kochelberg Peak, which is about the same size a mountain as Arwithfa, Snowden, the mountain that's almost in my back garden. It's just at the edge of the village here. And I look after some of the plant species that occur on Arwithfa. But Kochelberg Peak, as a mountain, has more plant species on it than the whole of the UK put together and yet it is only the size of Urwitha. And for me, the Cape Floristic region, when you go there, the vibrancy of the place. I landed there as a botanist for the first time in 2015. I stood in the Feinbos and I went, I don't know what any of this is. The levels of diversity, it's like, you know, if there is one true God, which I I believe that everything is a God, but If there is one true God, then the Cape Floristic region was God's crucible for evolution. And the amount of magic there is in that place is absolutely sky high. If you took a magic uh, detector device, a kind of natural magic detector device to the Cape Floristic region, it would explode because of the sheer amount of diversity that there is there and the brightness and the colour and the noise. Just incredible. Wow. Robbie, thank you so much for sharing some really precious thoughts with us. I absolutely loved that conversation with Robbie. It was a bit different. I knew it was going to be a bit different and I wanted a bit different because I think, at least I'm very much guilty of this, I spend a lot of my time focused on what everyone else is doing, what's going on around me, and I rarely turn that attention inward and to really search myself and my thoughts and my feelings and just kind of check, you know, biases and assumptions and all that stuff. And speaking to Robbie really helped to bring home this idea that sometimes, in fact, you could argue, every single time. System change, any kind of change, starts from within. It's an inside job. I am so grateful to Robbie for being willing to share his thoughts, his feelings, and his beliefs. I know, because I share them too, that it can feel very vulnerable talking like that as a scientist. But do you know what? Looking at what Robbie does, what he's achieved in caring for and working to save some of the most endangered and rarest plant species on the planet in his back garden, in his botanical garden, I would argue, you know what, if it works, why not do it? If you know someone who will enjoy this as well, please do share this episode. Of course, you can follow the podcast for more ideas of how to make the world a better place. We'd love to hear from you as well. Join in the conversation. Email us at podcast at julianburkvoice.com. And above all else, take some time, take a moment, take a breath. And really think about 
If you rule the world and wanted to make the world a better place, what would you do?